This is an ABC podcast. What's in your stack of books at the moment? Ours include A War in France with English Archers and a Lot of Blood, The Italian Renaissance, complete with painters and political machinations, and a captured tiger or two. There are ghosts and the Bloomsbury set as well, Kate, on our desk today. This is The Bookshelf and I'm Cassie McCullough. And I'm Kate Evans. And as always, what we're planning to do today is to introduce you to new fiction and to leave you with a book list as long as your arm. No pressure, though. You don't have to read everything. (laughs) That's why we're here. Or at least that's why Kate's here. (laughs) (laughs) Well, look, all of today's books look to the past in some way. So, Cassie, what happens if we put them in chronological order? Oh, okay. Well, the Hundred Years' War would come first. We're starting there in 1346 with a bunch of rat bag, well, a band of people from the island of England heading to France. They call themselves the Essex Dogs and that book is by historian Dan Jones and that's his first work of fiction. Then we'll head to Florence in the 1550s to meet a girl named Lucrezia de' Medici. And that's in Maggie O'Farrell's The Marriage Portrait. She's a, a girl too. She's a very young one and it's no spoiler because it's on the first page, but she dies uh, at the age of 15. And she is the character who's celebrated both in a painting and in Robert Browning's famous poem, My Last Duchess. That's my last duchess painted on the wall, looking as if she were alive. Also in our historical journey today, we get to Virginia and Leonard Wolfe in the early decades of the 20th century with the Australian writer Sophie Cunningham's novel, This Devastating Fever. And we'll kick off with that one, Kate. Sophie Cunningham is an Australian writer, editor and teacher whose books include Fire, Flood, Plague, where writers responded to what happened in 2020, City of Trees and Melbourne, which was part of that literary series on Australian cities. So she's written a lot of non-fiction. She's also one of the founders of the Stella Prize for Women's Writing and a former chair of the Literature Board and the Australia Council. But we're here to talk now about her novel, This Devastating Fever, a novel that she admits was a long time in the making. It took her 15 years or so to write and it moves between the early decades of the 20th century, especially, say, the 1910s to the 40s, and roughly the present, with quite a focus on the year 2020. And a focus on real characters as well as fictional ones, but particularly members of the Bloomsbury set, the modernist writers who changed the English literary world a century ago, in particular Virginia and Leonard Wolfe. Leonard, I think it's safe to say, Sophie has been quite obsessed with. Yes, but Virginia Woolf, of course, is the author of novels like Mrs Dalloway, essays like A Room of One's Own, and her letters, diaries and other work, they've been scrutinised again and again. And even here on the bookshelf, we recently read Michelle Carl's novel, Daisy and Woolf, which took a minor character from Mrs Dalloway and put her at the centre of the story. So people are still fascinated by Virginia Woolf and still read her work. And there was that film, The Hours, which revived interest in the mainstream in her work. Leonard, while less known, perhaps no less interesting, and this is where Sophie Cunningham's novel comes in. 
He was a civil servant who spent time in Sri Lanka from 1904, or Ceylon as it was called then, and he was a political theorist, he was a writer, so they were both real players on the literary scene. But why don't we get to what's happening in this novel? Okay, so let me try and keep this as simple as possible, which will last for about 10 seconds. <laughs> it opens with a very brief chapter. It's 1936 and it's an interaction between Virginia and Leonard Wolf, and they're getting ready to go to some event or other and Virginia's insisting that they dress up for it. It's a dress-up party and uh, she knows what they're going to wear and she informs Leonard they're going as two sets of bookshelves. How fitting, Kate. We could go like that to a party one day. And uh, one's fiction and one's non-fiction. And Leonard says, which one will I be? And, and she says, seriously, Len, do you even have to ask? <laughs> and they're going to a party. And I reckon any scene that involves Virginia Woolf and a party, you immediately think of Mrs Dalloway getting ready to go to a party as well and who's going to buy the flowers. Mm-hmm. So, that I mean, that is literally one page of writing. Then suddenly we're in 2020 and we meet Alice Fox, who is a writer. She's a Melbourneian and she's obsessed with, well, the Bloomsbury set, but but in particular Leonard and by default Virginia. And she is writing a novel. That's how her obsession is going to play out. She's also responsible for an elderly neighbour with dementia, a woman named Hen, who we hear about quite early on. She's often in and out of the archive. And I have to put it out there, though, Cassie, I know your antipathy to novels about writers. Look, I actually almost rang you up and said, why have you given me this novel to read? Because you know how I feel. And I said, because it's an important novel. (laughs) Yeah, look, I've I've often complained about novels about novels or writers writing about writing. I'm sort of starting to bust through this. I had a conversation with a friend of mine, Alison Clark, who is both a psychoanalyst and a poet herself, and she said that I she said that actually writing is part of thinking and so to have writers and novels as the subject of fiction is understandable. And so I'm sort of working through that. Well, I'm glad you've listened to her, but not me on this argument, Cassie. That's good. (laughs) Because grappling with creativity is something that so much fiction does. And often, I guess, the figure of the writer is one way to do it. Oh, well, I could think of a few others. But anyway, well, yes, back to this book. In it, we switch between these two narratives of Leonard Virginia, their crazy scene, which is full of family, lovers, intrigues, everyone's sleeping with everyone, it seems. There's a lot of fluidity about sexuality, which I'm assuming is is accurate because that's what this novel's doing. It's taking us between the archive and the history of these people and into the fantasy that gets woven around them, both by Alice Fox and by default Sophie Cunningham, I think there's no secret that Sophie Cunningham and Alice Fox are interchangeable at times. I mean, Alice is writing a book called This Devastating Fever. Well, I spoke to Sophie Cunningham recently and I did have to ask her about Alice and whether Alice was in fact Sophie and here's how she responded. She's a woman who spends a lot of time in libraries researching the lives of of Leonard and indeed Virginia. She is not me but certainly her adventures in libraries were my adventures in libraries. And I've actually always loved libraries. And 
when I was trying to think about what aspects of myself, my writerly self, would be useful for the novel, I did realise I wanted to capture the excitement of creation that's part of writing, the kind of the slightly obsessive pleasure. of, of It's like being a detective, I think, um, going through archives, reading lots of letters, learning about so many things about so many people. I mean, I learned so much about people that do not even get a mention in this novel. And yet, you know, you spend so much time in, in these archives. Yes, I think <laughs> you're going to have to work harder to convince us yes. why she's not you. So tell us uh, what's different about this woman. Oh, well, I mean, her, her private life, her parents die when she's a teenager and she's brought up by, uh, as from the age of, uh, has a close sort of family friend who finishes the bringing up of her who is very unwell and so that, that Alice has the experience of caring for someone who is really struggling and that was to um, very much to try and capture echo what was going on for Leonard. Well, Kate, I'm glad you went back for a second bite there because... I wouldn't have let her get away with that either. Yes, I did have to sort of push her on how much Alice really was her. While we're hearing from Sophie Cunningham, why don't we also hear about why she was interested in in Leonard? The more I went back to his work, the more I found that he was writing about things that were happening then that really reminded me of things that were happening now. His descriptions of Mussolini, he wrote quite a bit about the the build-up of fascism in the 30s, really reminded me so vividly of Trump. He, in fact, went to Germany in the early 30s. He and Virginia went together, and it's a scene in the novel because they wanted to see what was happening in Germany, and that was actually quite a risky operation. So I became very interested in his political curiosity. He was a socialist. I had a lot of political sympathy with him. So all those things made me want to understand him more. But then, of course, there is the fact that he was a carer of such a brilliant writer and such an interesting woman. I am also interested in what it is to be a carer I think we've all been thinking a lot, a lot about care during the pandemic and he was a caregiver for all his life with Virginia, certainly. I liked him despite the fact I could tell that he could be pompous and boring or there were things about him that would have driven me crazy if I'd known him. I really did feel a kind of kinship with him. Uh-huh. And it's the enthusiasm that Sophie Cunningham has for Leonard and this story, which actually starts to lift off the page and become a real novel. I, I did feel once we were off, I was very interested in their lives and also in the way that Sophie slash Alice was navigating their lives because it was in and out of the archives and into imagined scenes and into bits of history, places, and she has a lovely writing style. Her sentence structure is concise, uh, it's stripped away. I know exactly where she wants me to go most of the time. I, I think it's in parts she's more in control of the narrative than others and, and perhaps that's inherent in the nature of this book. It's openly something that she just had to finish. It was dragging on. It was an obsessive love project that just went on too long. And the pandemic, um, I've read her saying, and maybe she told you as well, Kate, she just decided, I'm going to finish this book. So it comes with that caveat. And actually, the honesty about that is something I appreciated. It reminded me of that most recent book of Christos Cholkos's, not anyway like the content, it's doing something very specific. But the writer in that 
which is also Christos, gave up the pretense after a while and then the narrative came and I think the same thing kind of happens in this book. Christos's novel is called Seven and a Half and it is also grappling with creativity and beauty and what that means. So they, some of these are quite big questions that we're getting to as well as in this one the whole question of the mythologising of characters like Virginia and Leonard Wolfe and the way that things are sort of speculated about them, some of which she resists and some of which, of course, she is speculating on as well because she allows this to be a novel that is also about Virginia Woolf's mental health, about the nature of marriage, about how sexuality works, about the fact that he was a Jewish man and the way that anti-Semitism played out. So there's a whole lot of ideas woven into this novel too. And it's a selected version, knowingly, of both of these people. And we have to say at some point they do appear post-death. They appear as ghosts and become friends, companions, critics, allies, stand-in parents. I think particularly Leonard becomes a kind of stand-in father for Alice. And while Leonard is in okay condition, Virginia hasn't fared as well. She sort of appears as this skeletal remains, you know, rattling away and clattering. And I'm not sure why that is. I guess it's because, as is detailed in the book, we know what happened to Virginia Woolf. She died by suicide, yes. And she walked into the River Ouse with her pockets full of stones and she wasn't found for two weeks. So I think that's why perhaps we see her in that form. I was struck by how sort of everyday and believable the Leonard Wolf ghost was. Mm. But as you say, the, almost the ghost of that coat full of um, stones has haunted so much of, well, feminist writing, particularly in the 20th century. I, I did like the time we spent alone with Leonard in Salon where he was being this colonial overseer, basically, and pretty horrible person, I think, in lots of ways. But he was also kind of charming with his love for the animals and investigation of the landscape and the, and the people. But Alice herself admits that the version of Leonard she's created on the page is one that's seen through fans' eyes. And, and at one point, quite late in the book, she writes this, she was pleased she'd dreamed up the version of Leonard that disliked fascists, gave apples to children and liked leopards rather than the man who once almost beat a horse to death and who tenaciously argued and truth told until all around him were beaten or bored into submission. So that's also true of Leonard Wolfe, but not the version of him that Alice slash Sophie chooses to put in this book. It feels like as a writer, Sophie and Alice have had to grapple with whether or not you need to like your subject to explore them. And it feels that that shifts as the novel goes on as well. In the early days, I didn't think I would like this book as much as I did. You need patience. But I did like the wrestling with the artistic project that was going on in it. You do need to have your reference section with you, I think, but that's okay. Yes, because it can be either an entree into that Bloomsbury set if you don't know about them already, and if you do, you do need to keep track of who's yeah, sisters where and, and who's brothers what and, and lovers and boyfriends and staff and everyone. <laughs> <laughs> but I do like a meaty novel of ideas and something that grapples with creativity, and it certainly does that. Sophie Cunningham's This Devastating Fever is published by Ultimo Press. <laughs> 
You're listening to RN's The Bookshelf with me, Cassie McCullough, and with Kate Evans, where every week we review new works of fiction and meet our reviewers who come along with all sorts of different areas of expertise. So let's meet today's guests. Stephen Gapps is with us. He's an historian, a museum curator, a heritage specialist, and he's also written about Australia's frontier wars. Hello again, Stephen. Lovely to have you. Hi, Cassie. Hi, Stephen. Okay. Now, uh, your two latest books, The Sydney Wars, Conflict in the Early Colony, 1788 to 1817, and also Gudjara, the first Wiradjuri War of Resistance, 1822 to 1824. These are very dark stories. What drew you to them? Mm. I guess two different reasons. Uh, with the Sydney Wars, it was very much that I thought that that area of conflict in the early colony hadn't been tackled properly um, as a whole and needed a bit of a kind of military history insight into it as well. Um, the Bathurst War, again, hadn't been treated by historians that well in my mind, so it's it's kind of needed a revision of that, that history. And so, Stephen, what does it mean to frame these as military histories? What do you mean by that? I, I wouldn't say I frame them as military histories, but introduce military history or the, the thoughts, the analysis of military historians into that area, which, which hasn't really been done. It, it's, it's being done increasingly so, but it has been ignored by military historians in favour of modern wars. But there's a wealth of, you know, people are finding there's a wealth of military tactics and strategies that we can understand early colonial troops, settlers and Aboriginal warriors uh, using and, and they're bringing new insights into that those histories. Let's bring in our second guest, Amy Walters, who's a writer and a reviewer whose work appears in the Canberra Times, Kill Your Darlings, Mianjin and other places. And she's also a PhD candidate in English literature at the ANU. Hi, Amy. Hello, thank you for having me. Yeah, great to have you, Amy. Now, your PhD is on the work of the writer Maggie O'Farrell, who's Irish but lives in Scotland. What is it that you love about her work? Well, I guess what first got me hooked was her really strong feminist consciousness and the way that she continually foregrounds the lives of women. But I think really these days it's this really haunting quality that is present in all of her work. And no matter how many times I read her novel, it's still there. You can't rationalise it away. And I just feel there's this really strong sense of mystery at the heart of her work. And that's what has me gripped. And Maggie O'Farrell is not just a novelist. She writes non-fiction as well. And I think particularly haunting um, is her story of her experience, but also others' experience of proximity to death. Yes, that's right. In 2017, she did release a memoir which details her many brushes with death. Um, I guess the one that has stayed with her the most is she survived viral encephalitis when she was a child. Yeah, that experience I think is quite formative in her, I guess, approach to life more broadly, but also in her writing that you get a really visceral sense in her writing. Stephen Gapps, I wonder if we could return to you, just thinking about what Amy said then about a sort of visceral response to, well, 
to reading, but, you know, today we're talking about historical fiction and you're a historical reenactor. Now, can you explain how that works and what that means for a sort of visceral response, I guess, to the past? What's a historical reenactor? Mm. Come on, does this mean that on the weekends you, you get into all the gear and that's, get out into the bush? That's kind of it uh, on a very, very basic and simple level. Um, but there's there's varying levels of historical reenactment from, you know, old Sydney town to Sovereign Hill, Ballarat, where people dress up as if they were from the past. Um, some people go and try and use that to do experimental archaeology or what, what they call it and to try and understand about maybe how things worked in the past, how, how clothing felt. Um, sometimes to try and attempt to add information that may not be otherwise available through historical archives <laughs> or other sources. So to, in a really practical, concrete way, yeah, it makes there's sense a, there's of a the level of doing historical that as record. Well. And then there's sometimes it's just a bit of fun and nostalgia. Have you ever immersed yourself in the period that the book that you have read for us is set in the Middle Ages, so that sort of period of the Hundred Years' War, 1337 to 1453? Not not especially. Um, uh, I've dabbled in a couple of medieval kind of um, general medieval events. I have been to actual um, battle reenactments from the Battle of Hastings, which is early, wow. early medieval, and Viking Age reenactments as well. Um, so actual. Who won the Battle of Hastings? When uh, you well, were there? They, you, you can't re- reverse history in, in a in a reenactment. Um, but yeah, so I've experienced kind of similar, I guess, um, early medieval battle reenactments that that relate to this area. So in the Essex Dogs, there's there's sections of man, of um, manuscripts from historical manuscripts with brief descriptions about what happens in various moments or battles or. Um, and I remember at the Battle of Hastings, for example, at the end of the battle, the Normans are pushing up the hill. You probably know the general history. I was one of the Anglo-Saxons and we pushed up to the top of the hill. I was already dead, you know, dead as in, you know, <laughs> I meant to, meant to lie down and play dead. But the press on top of the hill of all the bodies pushing meant that I couldn't lie down. I was stuck and I kept getting hit on the head by a sword and an axe. And I'm screaming out, but I'm dead, I'm dead, I can't, but I can't lie down. And then I recalled so that... Monty Python. I, it was. But I recalled that uh, reading something, I think it was Roger of Malmesbury, who wrote a little bit later, 100 years later, about Hastings, and he said something like, the batter was so closely pressed the dead couldn't fall over. Ah. And I was like, oh... That's you know, what he those... means. I've <laughs> been there myself. Which makes you think about that source, which has kind of been regarded as one of those one of those typical medieval sources that's a bit flourished, uh, a bit exaggerated, tens of thousands of people died or whatever. And you just think, oh, well, maybe, you know, it's worth revisiting some of those sources. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's a great example. And that book that you've read for us is called Essex Dogs and it's a novel by the historian Dan Jones. And, Amy, you're going to take us to the Italian Renaissance in the late 16th century with Maggie O'Farrell's latest novel, The Marriage Portrait. So lots of people are going to be hanging out to find out about that novel. So why don't we begin there? Well, as we've already heard from Amy, Maggie O'Farrell is a best-selling writer. She's from Northern Ireland, but she now lives in Edinburgh. And her books include the memoir I Am, I Am, I Am, and eight novels, including The Hand That First Held Mine, Instructions for a Heat Wave, The Vanishing Act of Esme Lennox, and Hamnet, which is, I guess, the big 
bestseller of hers, which is about the death of Shakespeare's only son, the 11-year-old who died of the plague. Now, it won the Women's Prize for Fiction in 2020, and Kate and I have had a quite celebrated disagreement about that book. Yes, we have. Um, We won't go over (laughs) old territory right now because we've got a new book to talk about, which is called The Marriage Portrait, which you, Kate, and you, Amy, have read. And perhaps we need to know a little about uh, this portrait before we talk about the novel, Kate. Yes, well, marriage portraits were a thing in... In Renaissance Italy, at least if you were wealthy enough to commission one. So they might include one or both of a couple. They were highly codified and full of symbolism, quite beautiful with details of rich clothing, uh, beautiful jewels and so on. But what we should imagine now is a very specific one, a real portrait that was painted in 1560. And it shows a young woman, quite beautiful, a pale, sort of serious face. She's wearing very rich clothes and she's holding her hand up to a large red gem. Now, her name was Lucrezia de' Medici. She was about 14 years old in the painting, but she died when she was only 15 and she was already married then to a duke. Now, I've had a look at this portrait and what's notable to me is the eyes. The eyes seem to be glaring out of the picture. They're slightly narrowed and extremely intense. Is that the way you describe it? Well, it's such an interesting face. I mean, in some ways she doesn't look young. She doesn't look like a teenager. And I can see why it might have taken the attention of Maggie O'Farrell, but of course it also took the attention, hundreds of years later, of the English poet Robert Browning, and that's the basis of his famous poem, His Last Duchess. Amy, how would you describe that portrait? Yeah, I think you're spot on. She certainly does not look happy in that portrait, and there's a real, I guess, knowing what we know now, um, that she died not that long after that portrait was painted, there's a real sense of mystery as to how how did that happen? Um, you know, what, what led her to die at such a young age? I did um, have the good fortune of interviewing Maggie O'Farrell recently, and she said when she saw the portrait, she got the strong sense that Lucrezia wanted to tell her something, and that's what <laughs> put her onto Lucrezia's story as a premise for a novel. Yeah, she leaps. She leaps out of the frame in this picture. What a great experience. And for people listening to RN, they'll be able to hear Maggie O'Farrell speaking to Claire Nichols in the next edition of the book show as well. Well, Amy, I'm looking forward to reading your interview with Maggie O'Farrell. I understand that's going to be published in the Canberra Times or it may already have been by the time um, people are listening to this. So have a look for that. And we'll, of course, put links to that on the bookshelf webpage. But let's turn to what it is that Maggie O'Farrell has done in the fictional version. So this is a novel. Amy, as the novel begins, what's happening? So Lucrezia has been taken to a place far away from her marital home in Ferrara and she's having dinner with her husband and it occurs to her that her husband intends to kill her. (laughs) So she is wondering what will happen next. Yeah, wondering what his next move will be. What is it that gives his intent away? Well, she's been watching him and worrying about him for a while. But to us as readers, it's a surprise. So at the end of the very first paragraph of this novel, she's 
realises that he intends to kill her. This is a surprise to us, but it's not a surprise to her. So it begins at that point. And then we flip back in the story, literally to this girl's conception. And so we then get some a sort of origin story about her family in Florence. It's about 1544. And we're in this, well, we're in a very particular world, aren't we, Amy? What is the the world of her family that she's born into? Well, she's born into the wealthy Medici family. Um, she's the daughter of Cosimo and his Spanish bride, Eleonora. So I, I guess, guess the thing she... about them is that they're, they're powerful. It's mm. not a monarchy, but in that system, I mean, they have extraordinary political and religious influence. Um, That's right. And there's a really strong sense that the family is a dynasty um, and Lucrezia sort of becomes a pawn in that because she is given to Alfonso, the Duke of Ferrara, in marriage and it's really to create an alliance between the two families. He's much older than her, isn't she? I mean, I mean she's only 14. It wouldn't be hard to be older, but he's significantly older. Yeah, there is quite an age gap. Something like 30-something, 30, 30 in his 30s. Yes, um, but yeah. she was even younger when the alliance was made. And at first, the marriage, and it's a, you know, it's a political marriage, it's an alliance, it's a strategic marriage organised by these families. And he was going to marry her older sister, who died. Mm. And then when the sister died, she steps in. But before that happens, we get a picture of this child who is perhaps not as pretty and not as cosseted as her siblings. She's described almost as a sort of wild child, do you think, Amy? Yes, and that's quite interesting because rebellious daughters are a recurring theme in Maggie O'Farrell's work. Lucrezia is described as uh, a baby whose eyes are open always, as if seeking distant horizons. So she's got this sense that uh, you know, from quite early on that Lucrezia perhaps wants more than what her family has in store for her. So she's clever. We see her when she's about seven years old, absorbing the stories around her, hearing classical stories, sort of underestimated by those around her until they start to notice, for example, that she's quite skilled at art and that she's drawing things. But she seems to have the skill to be quiet and to move around this, I don't know what you'd call it, stately home castle and observe things, including a menagerie. Now, this, again, was something that happened, was that the very wealthy um, collected exotic animals. Tell us the role that they play in this novel. Yeah, so this is based on actual historical fact. Um, the Medicis did keep a collection of animals beneath the palace and Lucrezia discovers that there's a tiger has recently arrived and she begs her father to take her to see this tiger and just falls in love with it, um, with its, I guess, elegance um, and self-possession. And she really comes to identify with it and... I guess, kind of views herself as a tigress. She has a really strong sense of self and that's not necessarily appreciated by the people around her. Poor tiger. I won't give away what happens to the tiger, but it is based on things that did happen to these exotic animals. I'll have to confess, Amy, that I did find the tiger and the birds and various other animals who are, you know, caged, constrained, whose wings are clipped, who aren't able to live in the world as they want, I found that a little bit overplayed in terms of how we understood this young woman. Like, I got the point. I didn't quite need it to be spelt out so many times. 
Yes, I, I agree with you. I think maybe Maggie O'Farrell sort of stumbled across this historical fact and really ran with it. But I did feel as well that it was quite heavy handed and perhaps undermined some of the more subtle aspects of the novel. Well, tell us which aspects you found to be subtle and interesting. I mean, I quite like the role that art itself played in this novel in a period that we remember for its art, but also giving those creative skills to this young woman. I found really quite interesting. But what were the aspects that appealed to you? Yes, I agree. So Lucrezia is portrayed as an artist and I guess this gives us a sense that she has a really vivid inner life. But of course, once she's married, she has to really repress all of that in order to perform the role of a dutiful wife. And I think where that gets interesting is where the whole concept of the marriage portrait comes into play. And the marriage portrait that the book gets its title from is actually fictional. But I guess Maggie O'Farrell uses it to really show the way Lucrezia has been remembered. So she's painted by a male artist in a portrait commissioned by her husband in order to show how he views her. So he wants her to be trade as this quite majestic ornament, really. That's what she's been reduced to. And Lucrezia does get a sense as the portrait nears completion, that this portrait is going to replace her. So So just to be clear then for people who might be confused about how we described a real picture, so Maggie's been inspired by a real portrait, but we see the making of another imagined portrait. That's right. So I'm kind of curious, what's the form of this novel we begin at the dinner table when this realisation <laughs> comes into Lucrezia's head, but uh, then we go back. What's the body of the narrative? Yeah, so it keeps leaping backwards and forwards in time. It cuts between her childhood and we see how she's raised and she's raised uh, in a way that encourages her to sort of repress her own Um, interests and desires. That's a preparation for marriage because that's exactly what is expected of her when she's handed over to Alfonso. And he is a, well, he's a fascinating character because she at first sees him as this charming man who she doesn't know. So she's going off into a mysterious future, but it becomes more and more foreboding, not just because of that opening paragraph where we know that she thinks he's going to kill her, but because we are trying to make sense of the mystery of it. So, Amy, uh, um, we mentioned, obviously, the portrait, but also the Robert Browning poem, His Last Duchess. How does it figure in this book, if at all? Yes, so I think this is central to understanding the whole novel because Maggie O'Farrell is really talking back to Robert Browning. The Browning monologue, My Last Duchess, is also thought to be inspired by the death of Lucrezia, but it's written entirely from the perspective of her husband, the Duke, and she is silent throughout. And I think Maggie O'Farrell really has taken issue with that and is really seeking to capture Lucrezia's voice and in doing so has really, uh, I guess, spoken back to the way she's been silenced. That relates back to uh, the book that we read, Kate, Sophie Cunningham's book and Virginia Woolf uh, and Silence Means No is what she wrote in that Yes, and that whole, I mean, there's such a history of women's voices being both silenced and then reimagined in really quite interesting ways. But, Amy, given that you've read all of Maggie O'Farrell's work, how do you rate this one, The Marriage Portrait? 
Um, good question. I, I did like really enjoy it. All the fans, <laughs> the fans are on edge here, Amy. <laughs> I can't rate them. I just love them all. <laughs> I know that's probably not a very satisfying answer, but I will say that I think it's has some really great parallels with my favourite novel, The Vanishing Act of Esme Lennox, because it's all about, you know, are women going to collude with, you know, these very authoritarian structures or are they going to resist and how do they do that? So I find that very interesting. I found this an easy book to read. There was the fascinating detail of the daily lives. It was very immersive. It was lush. It was beautifully structured, actually. I thought the moving between her present and her past worked very well. I did think some of the symbolism was rather overplayed and that as readers we get those parallels and they didn't have to be pointed out quite so strongly. But I did enjoy reading this novel, I'll confess. Yes, and I guess I have the benefit of having read all of her novels so I can sort of, you know, get a get a really strong sense of how these themes have been developed over her body of work. But I guess if you love the Gothic, it's really one for you because she goes to town with <laughs> with the Gothic elements. Um, you know, the creepy creepy husband, the passages under the palace, it's all there. Yes, there are definitely dark elements. And that's Maggie O'Farrell's The Marriage Portrait, published by Tinder Press. On ABCRN, I'm Cassie McCullough here with Kate Evans and our guests today, critic and PhD candidate Amy Walters and historian Stephen Gapps. And get ready for some more historical fiction because I believe there's a lot of swords and arrows and festering wounds in the book that you have read for us, Stephen Gapps. (laughs) There's a bit of sweat as well. Yes, all of that and more. Yes, a lot of sword fighting and And, and campaigning across France uh, through salty marshes and at sieging castles. And there's not nearly enough water to drink, but we'll get to that in a moment. I should also say that Dan Jones is the author and he has 10 works of history to his name, books like Summer of Blood, The Peasant Revolt of 1381, A Year in the Life of Plantagenet England, A History of the Magna Carta, and now he's written a novel. So this is his first one called The Essex Dogs, set in 1346. But it's a novel, right? It's a novel. This one is a novel. So who are the Essex Dogs, Stephen? The Essex Dogs, I uh, I guess you'd call it a company. They call themselves a company of around 10. Uh, It starts out as 10. It's slowly whittled away. But 10 men on a campaign, in Edward III's campaign, um, that begins really the Hundred Years' War in France. And this march they go on a march across France they're, they're I guess you'd say mercenaries and they're on a campaign they're under a lord who has promised them payment at the end of 40 days service which doesn't as we go on doesn't seem to be happening um, and it's their travails of being on a campaign in uh, France that ends up at a, a famous battle but before we get to that, I mean, we, we meet them as characters, don't we? So they're led by a man called Loveday, Loveday Fitztalbot. He's been doing this for a while, being this... Well, I wondered whether we'd call them mercenaries or career mm. fighters because it's not entirely clear of the sort of structure of this, this huge army. But as the story opens, they're in a little tiny boat ahead of the invasion of France, sort of scoping it out. And immediately we see it's brutal, it's violent, there's arrows in the throat, it's risky, 
And at first I thought what he was doing was showing us the sort of smallness and intimacy of warfare in the 14th century. But it was actually huge, wasn't it? It was enormous. Yes, um you, you, it, it's an interesting take on on that small the, the small daily gritty experiences of of these ten men, but you you also get the sense that they're on this huge logistical campaign of boats and horses and catapults and 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 wagon trains. Um, you also get the sense that they don't really know what the rest of the army is doing, and and I think that's a real strength that you see it through the eyes of these men, Loveday and his, and his men, rather than through, you know, Lord Robert or, or anyone else. Because they're probably illiterate, these men, they're sort of working-class men, their skills are skills of the, the body. I mean, one was a stonemason, um, another one is a longbowman, an, an archer, and so they're right in there in the dirt and sweat and fear of it. That's true it seems to become overwhelming. It kind of grows on you. It starts out very small um, in a way that this, this invasion is, is at first. It's like um, a journey through the French countryside and it's actually quite a bit romantic in some ways, but it's kind of snowballs into disaster upon disaster. Do you think they were his romanticising war? Look, you could argue that any historical fiction around that this this period or any other military campaigns <laughs> is, is romanticising war. Um, yes. I think his point is is not to try and do that, and he and he does get that across because it's not noble. I mean, it's pretty no. awful. He shows how just awful, dreadful, violent, horrible it was. Yeah, but I think what Stephen is saying, without putting words in your mouth, Stephen, is that that's what people who romanticise war do. They make it as gritty and as painful and as horrifying and yeah. terrifying as they can. I mean, still, ultimately, you know, you you might go through the campaign where they're, they're all wounded, their wounds are festering, they can't walk, but then they fight this major battle. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and everyone's, you know, there's got there's some heroes in there. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's every sort of Saturday matinee replay that you've ever seen, isn't it? Well, I mean, you mentioned earlier on the use of historical documents and I was really taken by the way that he does this because every chapter has a scrap of original material there and it's sometimes just one line and then it seemed to me that that line written from, you know, a noble or whatever is then animated by the chapter. Mm. So a simple line like they took this French village or they marched across this area, we then see from the ground. And I came to really appreciate the way that he was doing that. So did I. I came to. At first I thought, oh, it's just a bit token. But actually when you start to read them and then read the next chapter, some of the quotes, he's obviously playing out what, what was intended in the quote. But sometimes, one, I think one quote is about how we killed a thousand men. At the end of the chapter, you realise that they actually made that up and it became historical archive. And he shows that really well. So some, some of the quotes, he's trying to flesh out what happened. Other quotes, he actually is trying to say, well, that's propaganda. <laughs> and I think it's a really nice mix. So it's a commentary on history mm. as much as, mm. as a way of using it as a device to keep the narrative moving along. Mm. And how interested were you in the actual characters? Because there are these... 10 men at the start and they're they're quite distinctly drawn so you know there's two welshmen who don't speak english and who 
do all sorts of ratbaggery. There's a guy called Pismire, which is apparently the name for a biting ant and a totally crazy former priest. Um, how did you engage with them as characters? Mm. At first, you know, I wanted to know more about each of them and you only really start to get Love Day, the, the commander's um, background. You, you know, you get some of his life history coming back and forth in, into the story. But... Um, I wanted to know more about each of them. I didn't think it was enough for me, and particularly the Welsh archers who are off doing things outside where, where they should be doing them, and you don't really know what's their motivation. You don't know many of the characters' motivations, actually. I found that a bit annoying at first, but having said that, I actually did enjoy that in the long run in that you didn't really need to know because some of the, some of the characters who set out, I think, as the central characters become periphery or, or die, and it's the unexpecting characters who become the centre of the story towards the end. <laughs> this is also 450 pages long, and by the time you get to the end, you are well and truly set up to read the next two novels that come after. <laughs> Absolutely. Because you're left going, what? <laughs> but it was one of those, I, I found it to be one of those, um, you know, at first I was like, oh, another, you know, attempt at a sharp novel, a Bernard Cornwall-type historical fiction, you know, military. Con Eagledon. Um, and it didn't really do much. It was just, just pretty descriptive, but it really starts to suck you in. So what is the strength of it? Is it, is it the Band of Brothers? Is it the Scrabble fight? It's kind of almost anti-Band of Brothers. There, there's, there's this element of this ten-man company will, you know, he tries to keep them together at all costs, but that's more for survival. There's another band that wants to kill them over their own troops, you know, on their own side who are out to kill them. So it's partly, it becomes a struggle just for survival rather than um, a band of heroes because of brothership. But I found it increasingly interesting as it went on about how that becomes a commentary on the broader politics of lords and, and the feudal system at the time. And it's not explicit, but it just grows as part of the story. Yes, I think you could tell that this was a historian who'd really thought about the background and after writing 10 or 12 other, you know, works of history has decided to fictionalise something because mm. it felt that there was a real depth of knowledge there and maybe some arguments about things like the role of the English archer as an almost, I mean, it's a pre-industrial story, but almost as an industrial war machine. Well, these, these are longbowmen, are they? Yes. Yeah. Well, yeah. they're highly specialised, aren't they? They play yeah. this, I mean, you could tell us about that, actually. <laughs> well, there's a mythology, I suppose, around the longbow um, that he is, is writing against in some ways, um, but also uh, he's also talking about how effective it was as well. But there's this, you know, I guess this English... Um, worship of the longbowmen as, as the, the soul of the British military and that's what um, is the base of, of the, the British soldiers' effectiveness in, into the future. So what was it that they did that was so different and so effective, even though you're saying it's mythologised? Yeah, so during, during the story of the, of the campaign in France, you've got French and Italian crossbowmen with this kind of modern technology of a crossbow, which anyone can pull a trigger and shoot a crossbow. You can even have a support for it. The longbow is a very, very long piece of yew, usually yew timber. And to get an effective range, it's really hard, really difficult to pull back. So the English had already developed a system, and the Welsh and, and Scots as well, to train the, their, their yeomen, their 
you know, Joe Bloggs's in the use of the longbow, and it had become a formalised system. Um, and so they were highly specialised, highly skilled to to be able to fire and shoot rapidly. And they could shoot through the sort of leather and horsehair armour. So it was the way it's described here. This is a, a lethal weapon in a period when we might perhaps not be thinking about lethal weapons. So I was surprised by how much I was into all this detail because there was that, the trajectory of the war itself, these characters, some of whom are just totally bonkers, coming in and out of the countryside. And we were in an almost entirely male world. I think there's a handful of women who appear. And when you think about the civilian population, you're terribly worried. You're just waiting for something awful to happen. And yet somehow I was completely swept along by this novel. Although it took me a little while at the beginning to get into it. And then I was off. Yeah, and I think he, he treats he treats the the difference between the longbow and the crossbow quite well in that he, um, there's this this myth that at the Battle of Agincourt at the towards the end of the Hundred Years' War it's 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 you know five thousand against forty thousand it's that heroic last stand. Cressy is a bit different. It's it's kind of two to one, and the longbow is important, but it's not the he doesn't describe it as the deciding factor, and he and he shows. You know, there's a fear of the crossbowmen that the the British have, and they're, and they're really effective. There's a fear of the knights, um, but it's it's contextualised quite well. You know, through the eyes of people going, if I go that much further, I'm going to get hit by a crossbow, or you know, my my longbow has a bit more range. And you kept on noticing every time a bridge had been chopped down and they had to try to get across waterways, and you had to have the engineers there rebuilding them. So there was a lot in this novel that surprised me that I was held by it. Okay, well, this sounds intriguing and I know a lot of people will enjoy this. I can see it being a popular one for Christmas. Did you both like it? Who would like to offer their opinion first? Sure. Look, as, as I uh, indicated, I at first I thought this was another run-of-the-mill historical fiction, but I really really started, it started to grow on me rapidly to the point where I actually couldn't put it down. <laughs> I wanted to know what was what was really going to happen. There's a lot of twists and turns, particularly towards the end, so it's really worth ploughing on with. So, yeah, I, I really rated it as a, as a great work of medieval period historical fiction. I agree. Because I had just read Maggie O'Farrell's novel, which has quite a lush style, it took me a while at first to adjust to Dan Jones's style, which is a bit quieter and flatter at first. But then it really picks up pace in terms of the sort of excitement of it. And I was surprised by how much I enjoyed the detail, how much I got out of it, and how much I thought it was a really interesting engagement with both history and fiction. So a big blokey swords and arrows war book, that's a yes from me. Wow. <laughs> Not something you hear every day on the bookshelf. <laughs> and that's Dan Jones' Essex Dogs, published by Head of Zeus. Now, before we all part company, let's get a couple more book recommendations. First to you, Amy Walters, what would you like to recommend that you've read lately? I read this fantastic memoir by Tabitha Carvin called This Is Not A Book About Benedict Cumberpatch. <laughs> and Tabitha is a fellow Canberran. Um, this book was published earlier this year and it's basically an interrogation of fan culture and she's questioning 
why she became obsessed with the actor Benedict Cumberpatch. Does she um, does she get to the bottom of that? Because that that is you know a very common obsession, and I'm yeah. quite intrigued by it. Yeah. So for her, she says. I fell for Benedict Cumberpatch as a mother. So she realises that it was partly to do with the sense that she'd lost her identity after having children. But she interviews other fans, people who write fan fiction. It's just wonderful. It's very funny and insightful, but it also ends up being quite a moving examination of some divisions in contemporary feminism. So I highly recommend it. Yes, I know it's not really just a book about Benedict Cumberbatch, but if you just look up him trying to pronounce the word penguin, you will be charmed, I promise. (laughs) Apparently he's really big in China. They call him the curly one. They love him. (laughs) Yeah. What about you, Stephen Gaps? What have you read lately that you enjoyed? Well, something that I read a while ago, but I have just recently reread, um, which which is a good sign, um, is Billy Griffith, Deep Time Dreaming. Um, just really an amazing overview of the process of Australian archaeology and history. Deep time being kind of trying to understand the difference between history and prehistory and why we shouldn't be really talking about prehistory anymore, that it's all history. So um, deep time is a better way of thinking about that and what what archaeology has done over time, you know, expanded, for example, Australian archaeology from 5,000 years ago to 20,000 years ago to 60-plus thousand years ago, um, and how that's happened really, really quickly, only the last few decades. It's a great overview of the history of archaeology and the rewriting of human, human occupation in this in this country. And he has indeed been a reviewer here on the bookshelf, so thank you for that shout-out to him, Stephen. <laughs> well, lovely to have you both with us. Thank you so much for reading these books for us and giving us such great thoughts about them both. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, and thanks for having me. It was fantastic. Thank you. Stephen Gapps is an historian whose latest work, Gujarat, The First Wiradjuri War of Resistance, is published by New South. And Amy Walters is a writer, reviewer and PhD candidate in English literature at the Australian National University. And that's it for this edition of RN's The Bookshelf. Next time, we'll leap back into the present with Tracy Lien's All That's Left Unsaid, Clarissa Gurnawan's Water Song and Diane Connell's The Improbable Life of Ricky Burt. I'm Cassie McCullough. I'm Kate Evans. Bye for now. Bye. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.